0: We will be in Luke chapter 18 this morning. Luke chapter 18. And if you need a Bible, there is a Bible available to you in the uh, the pew rack, the hymnal rack right in front of you. And just again, a word of welcome, those of you who are visiting, thank you so much for coming today to Cloverleaf Baptist. We're genuinely excited to have you here. If you have questions, please let me know. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have about our, our church. Luke chapter 18 have you ever missed something that is glaringly obvious like right in front of you before how many of you have had an experience where there's something that you come to open the refrigerator you're looking for the mayonnaise okay this probably is more the men in the church where's the mayonnaise you're like where is it i can't find it honey we need to go buy mayonnaise and then she comes and just opens the fridge and there it was right you know right there anybody experienced that before okay good it's not just me um i I I am really, really bad about missing things that are really obvious right in front of my face, especially when it comes to the refrigerator. Everything just sort of camouflages in there. It's it's hard, okay? Uh, As we come to this text today, we sort of run into that sort of experience with the disciples. Jesus is going to say something that is very, very plain and obvious, and you kind of read this being like, how do they not get this? right? This is sort of a, the refrigerator is open and the mayonnaise is right there on the shelf at eye level and you missed it kind of a moment. And I have to say the only explanation for this is that the disciples, you and me, we're spiritually blind, right? God's truth is so available and apparent in front of us and we miss it. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31, follow along as I As I read our text today, Luke 18, beginning in verse 31, hear hear the word of the Lord. And he took unto him the twelve, okay, the twelve apostles, the guys who have been with him for the last three years, and said unto them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things. And the saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. It came to pass that as he was come nigh unto Jericho, remember he's journeying to Jerusalem, Jericho's on the way, a certain blind man sat by the wayside, by the roadside, begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passes by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then they went before, rebuked him, that he should hold his peace. And he cried so much the more, Thou, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith has saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. Here we have a passage where we have disciples who really should know what is going on, but are are blind to really obvious right in front of you mayonnaise jar kind of truths. And then a blind man who is a beggar sitting on the roadside, who seems to see things much more clearly than they do. And Jesus powerfully intervenes and gives the blind man his sight. Man, what, what a display of the power of Jesus. What a display of his power that he can open eyes that are, are blind. He can heal. He can deliver. By the way, that's why we've been singing what we've been singing today. We, we, we've sung about God's power that made the mountains rise. It literally created the universe. The power of Jesus that we will one day begin worshiping for all eternity We sung about his power as it meets us in our brokenness in And Can It Be. We're like that prisoner in a prison cell, and the light of the glory of the gospel comes in, and the chains fall off, we're set free, and we rise and follow Jesus, kind of like this this blind man who begins to be a follower of Jesus. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. What a powerful picture of what happens to us when we come to faith in, in Jesus. And of course, the power of the cross—that's how it's how it is all purchased and accomplished—is through Jesus dying on the cross. Just a reminder where we are in Luke's gospel. We've been going through the the journey to Jerusalem, and then we've come in to look at this section on kingdom citizenship. Really, everything from Luke eighteen, beginning from about or Luke uh, Luke eighteen, beginning in verse nine, down to the, Luke nineteen, verse ten is about salvation. Jesus is getting closer and closer to that city of destiny. He's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, to the cross. And as he does so, he makes clearer and clearer the call of the gospel. Right? He's saying, who's going to be a citizen of the kingdom? And he saying, guess what? Citizens of the kingdom aren't these high-minded Pharisees who, who are self-righteous. No, no, no. It's, it's tax collectors who say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because who's going to be a citizen of the kingdom? It's not self-reliant adults who are like, we're, we're special, we're important. It says No, those who, who receive the kingdom like a little child. Those, those are the ones who will be citizens of the kingdom. Who's going who's to be a citizen of the kingdom? Well, it's not the person who says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But those who make a pledge of allegiance to Jesus. There's a language for the kingdom of heaven. It's that language of confession, be merciful to me, a sinner. There is a declaration of dependence that is required for us to be citizens of the kingdom of God, and it's that dependence of saying, I'm like a little child who needs Christ. There's a pledge of allegiance saying that Jesus has complete and total control in my life. The rich young ruler who we saw last week, he was unwilling to make that pledge of allegiance to, 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 to let go of everything, to have Christ. But in this text here, we see that to be a citizen of the kingdom, we've we've got to undergo a radical transformation. He must open our eyes by his power. Here's how we're going to break this text down. We're just going to contrast the disciples and the blind man. The disciples, ironically, are spiritually blind to the things that Jesus is presenting to them, while the blind man, ironically, is the one who actually sees. So let's look at the disciples first. Notice their blindness in verses 31 to 34. They're on their way up to Jerusalem. We're getting closer and closer to the cross. Very soon, we're going to have the triumphal entry, and then we're going to have the Passion Week, and Jesus will be, will be crucified. And Jesus is reminding them for not the, the first time, not even the second time, but the third time that he has explicitly made these predictions. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. Let's back up and look at some of these. Back in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. This is his first explicit statement to them. Luke chapter 9. Verse 22, so he tells the disciples, this is right after Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah of God. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. This is the plan, guys. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for sinners. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to be rejected But I'm going to win in the end. Then again in verse 44 of that same chapter, he says, Let these sayings sink down into your ears. Like, listen up, guys. Get this into your heart. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. He's going to be handed over to sinners. He's going to die. He's alluded to it in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50. Luke 12 and verse 50. Jesus had said there, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now, he's not talking about water baptism, but this immersion into suffering. And how am I straight until it be accomplished? It has to happen. It's going to happen. This baptism into suffering. Luke chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. Again, he predicts, go ye and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and I do cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless... I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. Prophets get killed in Jerusalem. I'm going, I'm going to die. And then back in Luke 17, verse 25, he again makes this prediction. He's talking about the second coming, but first the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He's made it clear. I am the Son of Man that's predicted in Daniel. I am the suffering servant. I am the Messiah. But I'm not the kind of Messiah you think I am. I'm one who is going to go and die and suffer and be rejected. So, how did the disciples not get this? Well, what does their blindness entail? Well, first off, it entails them being blind to God's purposes. In our text in Luke 18, he says, I'm going there to suffer all the things that were written concerning the Son of Man and the prophets. God has this this purpose that he has had from eternity past to save sinners, and it involves his Son coming into this world, living a sinless life, dying in the place of sinners, being rejected, suffering and bearing the wrath of God in our place. He says all of this was predicted in the prophets. So how could the disciples miss this? They couldn't comprehend how Jesus could be the Messiah because, listen, they had this understanding of the Messiah being one who would rule and would reign and would conquer and be glorious and make Israel great again. That's, that's their idea. Like, he's going to be, be this conquering ruler because there's prophecies in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 11, that he's going to have a kingdom and the, the lion and the lamb will lie down together and he's going to rule and, and all these glorious things. And Israel will be exalted at the head of the nations. They got those prophecies, but they missed the ones that said... He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. They missed Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, where the the, the Davidic king is rejected and tortured and crucified. They missed Isaiah 50, verse 6, that said that I gave my back to the smiters and my face to those who plucked out the beard. They saw what they wanted to see, the, the predictions of a Messiah who would be great and glorious, not one who would be a suffering servant. And Jesus says, listen, the glory will come, but suffering comes first. The cross comes before the crown. They're blind to God's purposes, that God's purposes would involve a suffering Savior, that his purposes involved atonement being made for the sins of the world. Their expectations got in the way of seeing Jesus' purpose. You know, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We think, you know, God's purposes in my life have got to be to bless me, to make my life good, to improve my marriage. And you know what? God's purposes are not that. God's purposes are that you be like Jesus Christ. So we quote, you know, uh, Romans eight twenty eight, and We know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purposes. And we're like, yeah, God's got good things for me. And he does. The next verse goes on to say what that is. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You know, the second half of Romans 8 is all about suffering. God's good purpose in your life might just involve you going through suffering. It involves suffering for Jesus. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, before he was glorified, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The disciples were blind to Jesus' purposes, to God's purposes, to the prophetic plan, they didn't see how the Messiah would be one who could suffer. It didn't fit into their scheme, into the vision that they had. But they're blind in a second way. They were blind to Jesus' mission. Verses 32 and 33, when, you, when we look at this in Luke 18, he's very clear. I'm going to be delivered unto the Gentiles, okay, handed over, betrayed. Now, that could mean that he's handed over by the Jewish leadership, It's not really stated who. It could be the Jewish leadership, or it could even be God standing behind that. God the Father is going to hand his son over to the Gentiles, to the Roman leaders. Remember, the the Jewish leadership did not have the authority to execute someone. Rome guarded very jealously the power of the sword. So Jesus has to be handed over. We see that in the Passion account. He's handed over to Pontius Pilate, and the Romans are the ones who execute him. So he's predicting that. Right, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'll be mocked, spitefully entreated, and spitted upon. Just treated like dirt. When we read the Passion account, when we get to the end of Luke, and it's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in John, one of the things that the gospel writers highlight is not so much the physical suffering of Jesus, or just the shame to which he is subjected. He is treated horribly. Man, if God showed up into our world, man, people would receive him. They would welcome him. No, God has come into our world. And what did they do? People mistreated him. They scorned him. They hated him. The disciples were blind to his mission. The Lord of glory would be subjected to human scorn and ridicule. The creator of life would undergo death. He would be lashed with the Roman scourge. And all of this would be in fulfillment of God's plan. None of this is, uh-oh, the train is getting off the tracks. This is what God ordained. This was the purpose. This was the mission. This was the plan A. The cross for Jesus was the point of his coming. He didn't come simply to teach, simply to heal. He came to go to the cross. All of God's purposes come together at the cross. It's at the cross that we as sinners are forgiven. It is at the cross that we are reconciled to God. It's at the cross that we receive forgiveness and new life and a new start because it's at the cross that God's wrath that we deserve is poured out and completely satisfied. His purpose was to come, it was to suffer, and it was to save. Jesus' death wasn't just a martyr's death. It's an atoning sacrifice. His death is what gives us life. His death is what brings us close. His exclusion is what brings our inclusion in God's family. His suffering guarantees our glory. And his betrayal is what guarantees our embrace. Everything rises and falls on what happens at the cross. But look at verse 33, it says, he'll be put to death, and on the third day he shall rise again." Like the disciples don't get this. When the crucifixion happens, you get the feeling that they have just completely lost hope, that, that, that they're like, "This is it, it's game over." Yet Jesus over and over again said, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to rise again. Literally, my body is going to come out of that grave three days later, and that's exactly what happened. But notice verse 34, and they understood none of these things. You're like, Jesus is not speaking in a riddle here. He's not being like, you've got to figure this out. He's not speaking in code. He's speaking in plain English or plain Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever language he's speaking. And they don't get it. It's not that they don't understand the words. They don't understand the meaning. They don't understand the message. This just is so foreign. Their idea of a Messiah who would rule and reign is so cemented in their minds that nothing would dislodge it except the resurrection of Jesus. They do not understand. They are blind to their own blindness. They don't understand any of this, and they don't understand the fact that they don't understand. Does that make sense? Uh, No one is more blind than the person who thinks that they see and they understand. And I think the disciples think they do, like, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. They're right about that. He's a great teacher. Yeah, he's, he's the promised one. They got that. But they think that's all there is. And they're blind to the fact that they're missing out huge swaths of God's plan. Now, we know that they're really blind to their own blindness because in Mark's account of this, something happens at this point in the story. Jesus pours his heart out to the disciples. Guys, I'm going to go die, and you're going to walk with me and going to the cross. And then James and John are like, Hey, so Jesus, uh, when the kingdom comes, can we have, like, the numero uno seats at the banquet? We want to sit at the head table. Like, we want glory, we want personal fame, we want this to be all about us. Like, they totally missed the point. They're thinking, they're still thinking, kingdom, glory, banquet, big party, we're going to get respect and honor, and everybody's going to think that we're great. Totally miss it. They are blind to their own Blindness. When it all unfolds, the disciples are completely and utterly bewildered. They hear Jesus' words, but they don't understand. When the cross comes, they're absolutely devastated, absolutely shocked. And verse 34 really describes their overall attitude. Until we get to the resurrection, jump with me to Luke chapter 24. They would be sort of spiritually in the dark, so to speak, in spite of the fact that Jesus has made this abundantly clear. Until we get to Easter morning. So Luke 24, Easter morning. Jesus has risen from the dead early that day. He's met a couple of guys on the road to Emmaus. And verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they knew him. And then he vanished out of their sight. So he has dinner with them. And they're like, in this moment of divine illumination, he opens these two guys' eyes. And they realize, well, this is Jesus and he's risen from the dead. It all makes sense for them. They run back, they, tw- they tell the 11 who remain. Remember, Judas is out of the picture at this point. They're like, we've seen the Lord, he's risen. And while they're in the middle of telling him that, verse 36, Jesus himself shows up and says, peace be unto you. Now, what happens here in the story? We go along and look at verse 45. Then opened he their understanding that they may understand the scriptures. doesn't make any sense to them until Jesus opens their eyes. God's plan is so glorious and immense. We can't put it together with just human intuition and be like, oh, we got it. We understand this. This makes sense to us. This is why you cannot reason your way into the kingdom of God. Just through your smarts, you're not going to be like, oh, I've got the Bible figured out, and I know how this all works. For someone to enter the kingdom of God requires him to, to give us sight, for him to open spiritually blind eyes. We, we just don't get it. Now, we can understand the words. You can be someone who's not a Christian and understand, like, how to exegete the Bible and have a good understanding of Christian theology. But your heart will not embrace the gospel of Jesus. Your eyes will not see his glory and his beauty unless he opens your eyes. It's like there's a veil over your eyes. It's like there's a blindfold on your face to be like, oh, I see. And you don't actually see anything. It requires a sovereign work of God. It requires a work of his grace to help us see who Jesus really is. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just kind of a guy and we come to church and we're like, oh, this is Jesus. And he looks like me. He acts like me. He sort of fits my political agenda. Or is the Jesus that you worship and serve the Jesus who was predicted by prophecy, who is very, is, is very God and very man in one person? Is the Jesus that you love and worship the one who dies as a sacrifice in the place of sinners, the one who rose again from the dead? Is the Jesus you worship the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father, from which he rules and reigns over his church, Is the Jesus you worship, the one who is going to come back one day and resurrect the dead and judge the world? Is the Jesus that you worship and serve, the one who will for all eternity be the object of your praise and adoration? Is that the Jesus that you worship and serve? That's the Jesus we see in Scripture. And if your eyes have been opened, there's nothing more glorious and more beautiful and more attractive than the glory of Jesus Christ. I say that because there are multitudes of professing, professing Christians who don't find Jesus beautiful and attractive because their eyes have never been opened. They just sort of understand with their heads, but their eyes have never been opened to the glory and the majesty of Jesus to where they say, I love him and I want him and I trust him with all of my heart. The rich young ruler walked away from Jesus because he did not see him as beautiful and glorious and as a treasure greater than all of his wealth. Where the blind man that we're going to talk about in just a second Though he was blind, saw Jesus as the son of David and was willing to get up from his seat on the side of the road and follow him for the rest of his days. Is that how you view Jesus? You can have all the facts right about him, but does your heart embrace him and see him for who he really is? The disciples, they're getting there. They see him as the Messiah. Their faith is growing, and, and by, by Easter morning, they're going to get it. But let's move on to look at this other guy, the blind man. So we've got people who should see, who are sort of blind to certain things. But notice now this blind man who sees. I think it's deliberate that Luke puts these two stories together. Disciples who don't get it, blind guy who does. To give us a contrast, he's been doing that throughout this section. Remember we had the, the Pharisee and we had the tax collector. We had little children and then the rich young ruler. He's putting contrasting characters together, Right? So now we get disciples and then a blind beggar who Mark tells us his name is Bartimaeus. So what did the blind man see? Well, that's that's an oxymoron. But what did the blind man see with the eyes of faith? Well, verse 35, Jesus is now coming into Jericho. Now we know about Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. You know, we know that story and the walls came tumbling. Okay, so we know about Jericho from the the Old Testament. Uh, It's one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. Uh, Still there today, Palestinian uh, territory. City of Roses. Here comes Jesus to Jericho. Now here's Jericho. It's down by the Jordan River about 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is up on a hill about 3,000 feet above sea level, but they're only about 20 miles apart. We're coming to the final leg of the journey to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. More than likely, Jesus had come over into Perea, which would be on the other side of the Jordan River. So they bypassed Samaria and then come to Jericho. There's thousands of pilgrims on their way up the hill going to Passover. So it's not just Jesus coming through by himself. There's throngs of people passing through the city, multitudes of people passing through. What we get beginning in verse 35 all the way till we get the triumphal entry is Jesus getting closer. There's that language, he came nigh to Jericho, then he's going to come nigh to Jerusalem. That language, come nigh, come nigh, is going to signal that we're getting closer and closer to the the point of crisis that will lead to the cross. This larger section, we've had a rich young ruler with privilege and power and wealth, and he walks away from Jesus. But here we get a helpless blind man who will choose to leave everything to follow Jesus. So here we are, this blind man. What does he see? He sees his helpless condition, blind Bartimaeus, as Mark tells us. Now, we're not given his name here. Matthew's gospel tells us there's two blind men. Mark and Luke focus in on this one guy because he seems to be the, the, the one who really takes the initiative. Luke tells us that this happens as Jesus was coming into Jericho. Well, the other gospel accounts have it as Jesus is leaving Jericho. And to me, well, wow, there's a contradiction. There, there, there's two Jerichos. Okay, there's the old city of Jericho, and then Herod the Great rebuilds another one just down the road. So you can legitimately say Jesus is coming into Jericho, and he is coming out of Jericho because there's sort of two different Jerichos that are very close by. Good place to be, right between the old and the new city of Jericho. Here sits this beggar. Listen, he's blind. He doesn't have the ability to work any job. There's no way for him to earn a living. There's no government support programs. There's no social safety net. All he can do is sit on the side of the road and say, alms for the poor, alms for the poor, and hope that maybe somebody would throw a scrap of bread his way, hope that just maybe someone would would throw some, some spare change into his lap. Sitting by the roadside begging. Verse 36, and hearing the multitude, notice just the detail there, doesn't have sight. He relies completely on sound. What a pitiful plight. This guy reduced to begging, reduced to just sort of listening to try to see the world through his ears. There's no hope for him. It's an incurable disease. Okay? The state of medicine in the first century is appalling, right? There's nothing that medicine can do for him. Even today, with all of the wonders of science, you know, you can get, you know, LASIK surgery and cataract surgery. They can, wow, glasses and contacts. Even with that, there's plenty of forms of blindness that medicine can never repair, right? Can never, can never restore. This man, we don't know if he'd been blind his whole life or if he'd seen for a while then lost his sight. We don't know. But either way, he's in a very, very helpless place, reduced to sitting in the dirt begging people for help. You can imagine his day beginning like every other day began in darkness. Lunchtime, it's still dark. Nighttime, Still dark. Every waking moment is just inky blackness. So when Jesus comes along, he hears this crowd. He can hear a lot going on. He can hear the, you know, the, the, the clop of the, the hooves of the, the donkeys coming by and the creaking of the carts sort of going down the road. But he hears something different, a, a crowd of, of that's boisterous, that's happy, that's full of, full of people, full of life. A huge throng of happy, exuberant people. This was different. This was unlike other groups of pilgrims who came chatting as they walked by. And so he begins to ask frantically, what's going on? There's this language in verse 36. Hearing the multitude, he asks what it meant. He began asking in perfect tense. He keeps on asking. He, he's persistent. What's going on? What does this mean? What, what's this crowd? Why is this different? And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, it seems that he knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. Jesus the Nazarene is coming. He's passing through town. Now, Jesus was a really common name. It's just the the Greek form of the name Joshua, right? There's probably tons of Jewish kids who are named Joshua, named after that great Old Testament hero. So why Jesus of Nazareth, to sort of differentiate him from all the other people who were called Jesus at that time. Jesus of Nazareth, he comes from this humble grubby, dirty little town. Nazareth is just a hole in the wall. It's a, it's a backwater kind of place. It, it, people wouldn't even know that it existed except that this famous person, Jesus, is from Nazareth. It reminds us that this Jesus the Nazarene, he's not some high and mighty priest from Jerusalem who would turn his nose up at beggars. No, he's a humble guy. He's a carpenter. He's someone who has time for beggars like Bartimaeus. And he's got a reputation. His reputation very much precedes him. This blind man had heard the rumors and the whispers of this great miracle worker who was going up and down the land of Palestine. He'd heard about the sermons he had preached on the hillsides of Galilee. He had heard how he had opened the eyes of other blind people. He had heard how he had raised the dead and cast out demons. And in his heart, he believed He believed that yes this one who can do those things he's not just some trickster or some you know some miracle worker with parlor tricks up his sleeve he's the son of david he's the promised messiah someone who can do that is fulfilling the prophecies someone who can do that is fulfilling the longings of isaiah 61 1 who's going to come and pronounce good tidings to the poor he believed in his heart And listen, he knew that his condition was helpless and hopeless. There was nothing to change his being blind. His only hope was that he would be able to catch hold of Jesus of Nazareth before he passed by and left town. That was it. And by the way, this would be his one and only chance because Jesus is going to the cross. He's not coming back by this way again. There's an urgency here. There's this coming together of all of the moments of history for Bartimaeus to be there and Jesus to be coming right by him. His sole hope is Jesus. In his very first sermon, Jesus had stood up and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind Jesus is self-consciously fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 61.1, and blind Bartimaeus put together the pieces of the puzzle where the disciples couldn't. Incredible, incredible insight from this blind man. This blind man knew that he was blind. He knew that he was helpless. He knew that Jesus was the only hope. The same is true for you and for me. If you are going to be saved, if you are going to have your sins forgiven, you must come to the place where you realize, I am a sinner who is a rebel against God. You've got to get to a place where you realize, I'm blind and I can't see, I can't even see the kingdom of God unless I'm born again. And that's the rub, right? That's the, that's the hang up. We, we want to think of ourselves as good people. We want to th- think of ourselves as very insightful, well-informed people But if you're going to be a Christian, you have to come to the place where you realize, I'm blind Bartimaeus. I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. And God in his justice, if he gave me what I deserved, would immediately cast me into hell, and it would be right and righteous for him to do so. Bartimaeus understood his condition. He saw his blindness, where the disciples, in a sense, were blind to their blindness. But there's something else that he saw. The blind man not only saw his condition, but he saw Jesus' true identity. Now, the disciples got it. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but this guy saw something more. He saw that Jesus was the son of David. Notice verses 38 and 39. When he knows Jesus is coming by, he's, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then they try to shut him up, and he, he yells even more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Nobody told him that. He came to that conclusion based on the reports that he heard. He's the son of David. Now, who's David? He's the king, and God had made a covenant with David that, David, you're going to have a descendant one day who will sit on your throne and will reign forever and ever. Bartimaeus, this beggar, doesn't own anything, sitting in a heap of dust, realizes Jesus is that promised king. Here he is coming right back by me he sees the true identity of jesus as the promised messiah the king of kings his blind eyes perceived the true identity of jesus and that's not all he says have mercy on me if you read the book of psalms you get that cry over and over again lord have mercy on me and you know who it's always addressed to Yahweh, it's always addressed to God and God alone. By saying, have mercy on me, there's a tacit recognition that you are the mercy giver. Which is to say, you are the God of mercy. This guy is seeing who Jesus is, that he is the son of David, that he's Jesus of Nazareth, and that in some sense, he's the conduit for divine mercy. This is incredible for a beggar to be the one to come to this realization. He comprehended what the rich young ruler for all of his wealth and privilege didn't get. He comprehended what the disciples for all of their instruction and time with Jesus didn't understand. This is the Messiah. This is the king. This is the ruler. This is the mercy giver, and I am in need of mercy. And so notice what it does. Verse 39, those which went before So here comes the crowd, the people kind of in the front of the parade. They see Bartimaeus yelling on the side of the road, waving his arms frantically, trying to get people's attention. And they come on. Bartimaeus, be quiet. You're, you're, the, 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 Jesus is coming through. We want this to be a very dignified, peaceful kind of procession. And he keeps on yelling, be quiet, Bartimaeus. Zip it. You're, 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 you're embarrassing the town of Jericho with all of your theatrics. And I, I don't know. I picture Bartimaeus trying to throw dirt in the air, trying to do anything to, to get Jesus to notice him. Maybe they're thinking, don't call him the son of David. The Romans will hear that and think that you know, the, the, there's going to be this king coming along. Keep it down. Over and over again, they're rebuking him. You notice when people are rebuking people in the Gospels, the disciples are rebuking the children for coming to Jesus. These people are rebuking Bartimaeus for trying to get to Jesus. May we not be one of those people who stands between people and Jesus by erecting all of these ridiculous barriers? So they're telling him to be quiet, and what does he do? He cried out much more. Hey, he's got nothing to lose. He's a beggar. Nothing to lose. Cries out more and more, Son of David, have mercy, over and over again. He is persistent. He sees his need, he sees who Jesus is, and it leads to this persistent faith that says, I will not stop until the issue is settled, till the question is answered, till my sight is restored. J.C. Ryle said this He would not be stopped by people rebuking him who knew nothing about the misery of blindness. You guys don't know what it's like to be blind. I do. And so you don't tell me how I try to get to Jesus. You see, genuine faith is persistent. Saving faith is not a faith that just says, okay, I believe in Jesus. Check the box. Go on with my life. It is is a faith that latches onto Jesus and does not let go. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for what they shall be filled. It's those who... Hunger, thirst, who seek after God with all of their hearts, who find mercy and grace. So because of that, the blind man saw Jesus' power, saw firsthand and literally walked away seeing. He sees Jesus' power. So verse 40, and Jesus stood. Now just think about how that fits into what we've just said. Jesus is on a divine mission. There's all of these prophecies that he's fulfilling. Every single step that he takes, every word that he speaks is in conformity with his father's plan that was made before the foundation of the world. Think someone like that who's sort of on a mission has a plan would be like, sorry, don't have, that doesn't fit into today's schedule. I don't have time. I'm not seeing on my, my, you know, my schedule of events. Heal Bartimaeus. Except for Jesus, that was exactly what was the plan. <laughs> he stops. Even though he's going to the cross to die for the sins of mankind, the greatest event in human history, he had time to stand still and to have Bartimaeus brought to him. Jesus makes time for individuals. He makes time for the lowly. He makes time for for the broken. Here is the Son of God gripped by a poor man's need, so much so that he stands still. And I just want to remind you, this is the Jesus that we know and love and worship. He's not somehow different now that he is glorified in heaven. He's not like, okay, well, now that he's finished his mission, he's up in heaven, he's no longer compassionate, he's a little bit aloof and somewhat scary. This is the Jesus that we deal with. This is the Jesus who invites us into his presence. This is the Jesus who says, come boldly to my throne of grace, There's no no need that is too small or petty for him to be. I I don't have time for that. There's no saint that he's going to look at and say, come on, you should have handled that one. No, 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 he says, come, come boldly. And just remember this as well. Jesus, his character is not somehow different than the character of God the Father. He says, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. This is what God is like, a God who is willing And eager to welcome blind people and to have them brought to him. So if you're here today and you're hurting and you're helpless and you're hopeless, Jesus' arms are wide open for you to come to him in your need. And in fact, if you come to him in your need, you will find his embrace and his sweet consolation and his help and his mercy. Don't forget, that is who Jesus is from eternity past to eternity future. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a savior of mercy and compassion who is indeed touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. Jesus doesn't understand. Yes, he does. He walked this earth. He lived on this planet. So Jesus commands him to be brought. He has to, the blind man has to be led and brought to Jesus. He, he can't even get there on his own. Jesus comes to him and brings the blind man standing right in front of him. Jesus drew near to Jericho, and now we get the same word here that says in verse 40, and when he was come near. So Jesus comes near to Jericho, and then the blind man is brought near to Jesus. What a picture of what happens at conversion? Jesus takes the initiative. He comes to us. His Holy Spirit brings us to himself. What a picture. So what does Jesus do? He summons him, and now he questions him. Verse 41. What wilt thou that I shall do unto you? you See, well, Jesus, this is really obvious. I'm blind. Hello. Why does Jesus ask the question? It's not because he doesn't know, but because he wants this blind man to confess his need and to confess his faith. This is an opportunity for him To display his faith. So what does he say? I want to receive my sight. So what do you want? I want to receive my sight. Verse 42, Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight. And verse 43, immediately he received his sight. Same Greek word all the way through. What do you want? I want to receive my sight. So from request... To response, to healing, Jesus does exactly what is requested here. What a display of his power. It's not like, well, I'm all fresh out of healing power today. Sorry, come back tomorrow. Uh, you need to give a donation. Go see Judas. He's the, the money. You've got to give a donation, then maybe we can talk. He doesn't do that. He heals on the spot because he's God, and he can do those kinds of things. The audacity of the blind man here is staggering. First off, to yell as this great rabbi comes by and to make a scene and to say, I I will not let Jesus pass by. And then to have the audacity to come up in front of him. There's a big crowd watching to be like, I want you to heal my sight and give me, open my blind eyes. Um, That would be a really embarrassing thing to ask if it doesn't happen. If you're like, okay, we're going to try to do this and oops, it didn't work. You ever been in that situation where everyone's like, hey, you should do this thing that you always, and then you can't do it? Like, show everyone how you can do this basketball trick and then when there's people watching, you can't do it? Like, Jesus doesn't, doesn't fail like that. The blind man audaciously says, give me sight. No doctor could give him sight. No Pharisee could give him sight. No lawyer, no scribe, the temple couldn't give him sight. No sacrifice could give him sight. Only Jesus could give him sight. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Come on, we'll see Jesus with a big grin on his face. Remember, he's, he's a true human being. He has emotions, he smiles, he laughs. Receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. I love that. Jesus heals him with just a word. Your faith has saved you. The sinner who comes to Jesus in faith will never, ever be turned away. Now, I think this blind man's faith, let's be honest, there's a lot that he didn't know, a lot that he wouldn't have understood. He hadn't received the instruction that the disciples had. He wasn't the most well-informed. His faith, no doubt, was imperfect, was probably weak, was faltering, but it was real. It was real. His faith insightfully saw that Jesus was the Messiah. His faith persistently called out for mercy. His faith boldly asked for healing, and his faith richly received what it was longing for. Your faith has saved you. Now, some people will say saved here just means Healed, and it can certainly mean that, and I think it definitely includes that. But notice what happens in verse 43. He received a sign and followed him. Okay, that's that's important language. Earlier in this same chapter, Jesus had said to the rich young ruler, sell everything and follow me. That's language for discipleship. I believe blind Bartimaeus wasn't just healed. He was saved. He was converted. He was forgiven and became a disciple and a worshiper of Jesus. That's what verse 43 says. He begins to follow Jesus and he begins to glorify God. He's transformed. He is saved. What a miracle. So he'd ask for mercy. I don't deserve it. That's what mercy means. I'm asking for divine favor. He gets it and he's never the same. His heart wells up with irrepressible gratitude and joy like a volcano. It's not going to be stopped. And the the praise and the the worship and the celebration exudes from him. And I I believe it never stopped. So that word followed in verse 43. It's not just that he, well, kind of followed Jesus for a while. But I think the idea here is he begins following and he keeps on following. There's an early church tradition, which you take early church traditions with a grain of salt but said that Bartimaeus followed Jesus all the way to the cross. He became one of the leaders in the church at Jerusalem. And why not? He knew what he had been saved from, and he knew he owed everything to Jesus. I think he could sing with all of his heart, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Think of the contrast with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, Jesus had said to him, sell everything you have, distribute it to the poor, You'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And he's sorrowful, and he walks away. The rich young ruler has everything, and he's unwilling to give it up for Jesus. The beggar, he has nothing. So they're sort of, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to follow Jesus. The one who has everything will not give it up to follow Jesus, while the one who has nothing does. He becomes Jesus' disciple. There's a phrase in Mark's account where it says he cast aside his garment. Even the one thing, the one thing he had that was of value to him is, is an outer coat. So I'm not even going to let that get in the way. I'm letting go of everything to follow Christ. He didn't care that the Pharisees disliked Jesus. He was not moved by the fact that the, the, the vaunted Sadducees disagreed with him. He loved and worshipped Jesus, and that's the only thing that mattered to him. Beloved, there is no surer sign that you have had your eyes opened than that you love and worship Jesus. You don't have to write theology and, and be able to check all the boxes on a, on a creed or a confession, but do you love Jesus? You, yeah, I love Jesus. Okay, do you keep his commandments? Love will result in obedience. It will result in I want to please him. It will result in I want to gather with his people. It will result in I want to worship him. Do you love Jesus? So verse 43, there's this big worship party that just breaks out on the dusty streets of Jericho that day. Everyone who a few minutes ago were rebuking him are now glorifying and praising God, knowing that only God can do what we just saw happen. So he starts praising and other people start praising. Here's the reality. We are all spiritually blind. The Bible presents our lost condition a number of different ways as we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're slaves to sin. We're blind to the glory of God. We need a new birth. The Old Testament says we've got like a heart of stone. Stone doesn't feel, doesn't respond. We need a heart of flesh. We need a heart change. We need new eyes. We need a new birth. We need a new nature. Everything's gonna has has to change. I don't know about you, but if you think about I'm going to do heart surgery on myself, that's absurd. I'm going to open my own blind eyes, that's absurd. The only one who can do it is God, which means if you're not a Christian today, and when I say Christian, I don't mean, well, I'm generically, I can answer Christian on the Gallup poll as opposed to a Muslim or an atheist. I mean someone who loves and worship and trusts and relies in Jesus, one who has been born again. You can be born again today. You cry out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I'm blind, I'm lost, I'm sinful. Have mercy, forgive, renew. And the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anybody who will do that will be saved. We need Jesus to grant us sight. Now you say, I'm a Christian here today, I know I'm saved, I have sight. You know how easy it is to begin to, to give ourselves credit for it? well, thankful, I thank you, O oh Lord, I'm not as other men are who do such and such and such and such. If you find yourself constantly criticizing and judging and looking down upon others, it could be that you've begun to fall into this, this absurd place of thinking, I gave myself sight. Sometimes the disciples get there, don't they? Brain fire on heaven on these people. We always need to be reminded of this, all of his grace, all of his mercy. Like the blind man, the only appropriate response to Jesus giving you sight is to praise and to worship him. To praise him for his power, that's what we've been doing today. To praise him for compassion that is willing to stop on the roadway and pay attention to the likes of you and me. And praise him for grace that comes and grants us sight. Father, may we marvel at your grace. If you're here today and you realize in your heart, I'm, I'm spiritually blind. I don't see. I don't see the glory and the majesty of Jesus. I want mercy and grace. Just ask you to slip out of your seat right now and just head to the back of the room. Pastor Ryan is there, ready with his Bible to show you how you can have spiritual sight. Maybe you're a Christian today and you're like, man, I'm a bit like those disciples. I'm blind to so much of God's plan. Trust in his plan, his purpose, even when you don't understand it. Ransack the scriptures to see what it is that he is doing.